Thank you for being with us today. We're going to continue on in the book of Amos, which is where we were last week. So if you could uh, get there in your Bibles, it will also be on the screen behind me. Um, and we're actually going to read the same passage that we did last week in just a moment. I'm going to pull some different things out of us. Uh, one of our foundational values here at the Gospel Tab is biblical justice. Um, I wanted to take a few uh, Sundays, um, particularly with all that's going on in our nation, I wanted to take a few Sundays just to speak in to this um, foundational part of our uh, culture as a family on mission. Um, we believe very strongly that some of the things that we're going to discuss today are things that God has called all believers to, but we have felt the seed of that calling in us in a particular way uh, for a number of years now. So these sermons I'm preaching are things I've said before. Um, I've even preached versions of these sermons before, um, but this is foundational teaching for us and just felt like it was an appropriate time to pull it out again. So yeah, thank you for worshiping with us today, and I also just want to greet the folks who are online as well. We miss you, and we love you, and we're praying for you. All right, um, just a little bit of a reminder before we read out of Amos chapter 1, um, what is going on here. If you were here last week, you heard some of this, but maybe you missed it. Um, it'll be good for us to have a refresher regardless. Um, the book of Amos takes place hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus in the history of God's people, Israel. And it takes place in a time in Israel's history where uh, there has been a civil war that has divided the kingdom, divided the tribes of Israel that had existed for hundreds of years into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom in the scriptures uh, by this point is referred to as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom by this point in the scriptures is referred to as the kingdom of Judah. And so these, the nation has been divided because of this civil war. And Jeroboam II is king in the northern kingdom of Israel, and the prophet Amos, we know little about him, but he's from the southern kingdom, and he's been commissioned by God to prophesy, to speak in the northern kingdom, and we have um, his prophetic message recorded that's given to the nation. Now, as if you read this with us last week, you can see that the ancient world uh, was a time of treason and violence and war crimes between kingdoms. We're going to talk about that today. Um, for the kingdom of Israel, though, in the midst of all of this chaos of the ancient world that existed between ancient empires, um, this was actually a time of prosperity. The economy in the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, is doing well. Uh, the king has had victory in battle, and he has expanded the borders of the nation. The kingdom has more land than they've ever had before, and this is a fervently religious people. Um, these are people who are worshiping God, offering sacrifices. Um, it, we know from some of the things that Amos says to the people that this is a time when the northern kingdom of Israel was certain that God was on their side, right? They were certain of this. Um, how else would you explain the prosperity? How else would you explain the victory in battle except to say that the blessing of the one true God of heaven and earth was resting on them. So that's how they would have interpreted it. And because of that, they would have found Amos's prophecy to be very shocking um, to hear this kind of thing coming out of Amos's mouth because it would have challenged how they viewed themselves, how they viewed the nation. 
Um, We said last week that the kingdom of Israel in the time of Amos the prophet was characterized by three major social forces. The first was colonization, so the king had expanded the borders of the nation, uh, which meant that the kingdom had new land. Uh, But this land wasn't equally distributed among the people. It was given to the king and to his officials. So it was given to an elite class of people who now had more land than the average person in the nation. And they used this land as an agricultural society. They used this land um, to increase uh, farming production. And this resulted in the specialization of the economy, meaning that now there were huge olive farms. And And we know this from the archaeological record, among other sources, huge olive farms and huge farms producing wine and huge farms producing livestock. And this meant that the average family farm, which Israel really had been made up of until this point, the average family farm was just not able to compete against the prices of those large farms. And so it meant that many of these family farms were falling into poverty, so they went to go borrow money from the people that they could borrow money from, which was the same elite group of people. And then when they weren't able to pay those loans back, um, their land was taken from them, which leads to the third social force, urbanization. So for the first time in Israel's history, there's a whole class of people and a growing class of people who do not own their own land. And they're moving into uh, cities uh, where they're trying to find work, but many of them end up basically in slavery with their families because there's no other way to survive. And it's into these huge social forces that really aren't the fault of any one person. It's the manifestation of sin in the whole nation, the way sin is showing up in the economy, the way sin is showing up in in the ruling class of the people. But God is just saying there's something about this that has missed the heart of his law in the Old Testament, um, which is to always make room for the poor and the oppressed in the nation. This was so clear in the Old Testament law that God wanted his nation to always be a nation that had room for the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the immigrant, and Israel has lost that. And so this is some of what Amos comes to speak out against. Now, we're going to read the passage here in just a second, but you'll recall from last week that Amos kind of rapid fire moves his way through the empire's Um, that surround Israel. He starts with kind of the arch enemies of Israel. Um, These were people that uh, Israel would have had a lot of animosity toward, even for generations. They've been in conflict with these people. And then he ends up prophesying to the blood relatives of Israel, kind of the cousins of Israel who shared some common ancestry in their past. And then he prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah. I said last week, by this point in the prophecy, Israel would have been very excited because it sounds like the prophet is agreeing with what they think all along, right? Is saying that all of these people are wrong. But then the prophet directs most of his prophecy to Israel, which would have taken them totally by surprise. That's really what almost this whole book is, is a prophecy against the people of Israel. Now, you'll notice when we read through this that there's kind of a five-part order to the prophecies against the nations, Um, in chapters 1 and 2, Amos announces that this prophecy is from God. He uses God's personal name, Yahweh. When you see Lord in some translations, in all caps, it means that they're translating the uh, Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's personal name, and so he's delivering this from God. And then he identifies who is guilty. He makes it clear that God will not relent One reason Amos is such a difficult prophecy is because Amos is prophesying a word saying that the time for repentance has passed, that God is not going to relent 
from sending judgment. So repentance, uh, even if it should come, is not going to stop this judgment. God is going to bring justice on the nations. So he says that God will not relent. And then he identifies the crime, and it's that part that I especially want us to pay attention to today. Um, he identifies the particular crimes that these nations have committed. Um, and then he describes judgment often coming in the form of fire. And so we're going to read this together, and I want us to especially pay attention to the crimes that these nations commit. Now remember, Amos isn't prophesying just to individuals, he's prophesying to nations. And so when he talks about the sins that nations have committed, um, largely he's talking about the war crimes that they have perpetrated on other people. Um, and this would have hit ancient ears in a resonating way, because in every age of human history, even in something as horrific as war, uh, there are typically generally agreed standards, right? Um, this is an appropriate way to fight. This is a way that's off the table. And what Amos is saying is that many of the nations have engaged in war in a way that has perpetrated war crimes on other people. So let's read this together. It'll be on the screen behind me. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, so this is the first nation, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Uh, the picture here is of someone threshing a field, just cutting a field down. It was like when they fought in battle, they just came across and just indiscriminately killed. I will send fire on the house of Haziel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Gaza. So this is the second nation. Even for four, I will not relent. Because she took, here's the sin, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. She kidnapped whole communities and sold them as slaves. So what's the judgment? I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom. So same thing, sold a whole community of people. Disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. So now we learn something else that God cares about is the honoring of treaties or the breaking of treaties. They went back on their word. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. Verse 11. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. And so this empire, Edom, um, slaughtered even civilians, people who weren't fighting in battle, including the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his furry flamed unchecked. There was no restraint to the way that this empire fought in battle. So the judgment, verse 12, I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent, 
because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. So in order to get more land, they were willing to kill even pregnant women and their unborn children. Verse 14, so here's the judgment. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Moab, even for four I will not relent because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. Now this is interesting. Apparently they'd captured the king um, and he died in battle, the king of Edom, um, who he's already prophesied against. But the war crime here is what they did with the body. Um, they desecrated this dead body. So verse 2, I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Judah, even for four. So now this is the prophecy against the southern kingdom. I will not relent because they've rejected the law of the Lord. Now here there's a little bit of a difference because this doesn't quite sound like a war crime. Um, it's instead talking about the law of the Lord, and Amos doesn't take the time to get specific here. He does mention idolatry in the upcoming verses, but he doesn't get too specific. But we know if, if you really want to understand what was happening in the southern kingdom during the time of Amos, then you should study the book of Isaiah, because uh, they were contemporaries and prophesying in the same period of time. And if you read Isaiah's prophecy toward the southern kingdom of Judah, you see that he has much of the same beef that Amos does with the northern kingdom, right? The poor are being mistreated. People are being oppressed. People are being left behind. And have not kept his decrees because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Judgment on Israel, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. And those were the verses that we really dug into last week. If you missed it, our sermons are getting uploaded online. Um, and so you can go back and listen to that on uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts or um, I think through our website as well. Um, now, what I really wanted to pull out of this passage this time was a little bit different than what I did last week. I want you to notice the particular crimes uh, that God calls out among the nations that are deserving of judgment. I have a list uh, here up on the screen for you. Damascus, it was the indiscriminate killing of an entire population. It's just like you just mowed the field, like you just came in and just took everything out. Gaza, you sold whole communities into slavery. Tyre broke a treaty and then also sold whole, whole communities into slavery. Edom killed whole families and the defenseless. Um, including women, and there was unchecked, unrestrained violence. Ammon killed pregnant women and their unborn children in order to extend the borders of their empire. Moab desecrated the corpse of Edom's king. And not only had Edom's king died in battle, it was what they did with his body afterwards that God calls out. And then gets to Judah breaking God's law and idolatry, and then Israel... Um, economic practices that oppress the poor. Now here's what I find interesting about this list. 
at first glance, we might be tempted to think um, that some of these crimes are more serious than others. As a matter of fact, I'm certain that because Israel was so sure that God was on their side, that this is how they would have heard this prophecy. Um, Amos begins by prophesying these terrible, violent war crimes. I mean, just awful acts of killing other people, defenseless people, civilians, women, unborn babies. Um, and then, all of a sudden, the prophet starts to prophesy against Israel, and, and what's the crime? Economic practices. <laughs> um, it doesn't seem like these things should be on the same list, and I bet Israel would have been tempted to say, but wait a second, we aren't as bad as those other people. We didn't do the crimes those other people did. At least it's not that bad. At least we didn't do these awful things. Um, but that's not how Amos views it. So I, I want to ask the question then, well, on what basis then does Amos feel like he can talk to the people like this? How can he list off all these war crimes that to this day would likely, you know, initiate a United Nations war tribunal, right? Um, and then start to talk to Israel about their economy, you know, and how it's leaving people out and how it's hurting people. Well, here's why I think God does this. Because the unifying theological theme through the whole scriptures on these matters, including in the book of Amos, is that God is concerned, this is my first point, Letha, that God is concerned for human life, period. God is concerned for human life, period. Listen, it was normal for the pagan gods and their prophets who prophesied in their names to be concerned only about their own people. Um, all over the pagan world, you know, Jeroboam isn't the only king to have prophets around him. All of the pagan kings had prophets around them. Those prophets oftentimes represented other gods, pagan gods, and they would come to the king and prophesy. And you can bet if the prophet doesn't prophesy in a way that the king wants to hear it, right, that the people want to hear it, they're probably going to lose a job, right? Um, but Amos understands his commission doesn't come from the king, it comes from Yahweh, right? So he prophesies a different message, and this is totally different than what would have happened because it would have been this kind of partisan, racist, prejudiced prophesying that would have happened in all the other places. It would have been like, would have been like, yeah, of course, of course God or the gods is on your side, and of course he hates those people who are your ethnic enemies. Of course he... And this is, I think, exactly what Israel would have thought was happening at the beginning of this prophecy. Oh, Amos is prophesying how prophets prophesy, that God is on our side, that these people are terrible, that they do awful things, that we are the ones who are superior. But we see something very different. God is concerned for all human life. As a matter of fact, if you notice, Amos is not just prophesying against the war crimes committed against Israel. Um, he prophesies, for instance, against Edom, and then he prophesies against Ammon for committing, I'm sorry, not Ammon, against Moab for, uh, for uh, a war crime that they committed against Edom. So he's concerned not only for what's happening to Israel, but he's concerned for the way these nations, are, these, even these pagan nations, are treating each other. To look at this list of war crimes is to see 
that Israel's God is concerned for men, women, children, the unborn, poor Israelites, pagans, and even the body of a dead enemy king. God will avenge the deaths of even Israel's enemies because life means so much to him. Um, Now, this does raise an ethical question, and it's not one I'm going to answer in this sermon today. You might ask, well, Joel, if this is the case, then how could it be that a God who is so concerned for human life could threaten things like judgment and even command war, it seems, at parts of the Old Testament? And that's a good question. You should sit with it and ask it and wrestle with it. And theologians have wrestled with those things for a long time. And I love it. God's not threatened with our questions. So these are good questions to sit with and to ask. But just two quick things. First of all, God alone is judge. He alone knows what's needed to bring equity and to correct situations. And he has a perspective and a viewpoint that we just can't see when it comes to these big things. And so that's at least part of the answer is to to trust his character even in the places where we don't understand. But I would also say this, and this isn't a full answer either, Um, But that since the first human sin, God has worked within human sinfulness and within the human experience to work about salvation and to accomplish his purposes. And this is true not only with things like war, um, but with all kinds of things in the Old Testament that God is not that God is not saying is the ultimate picture of the kingdom, but He I love this about God. He gets down into the mud with us. He gets down into the dirt with us, into the human experience. This reaches its culmination, obviously, in Jesus, who was God in human flesh. But He gets down here with us and works out His story in the midst of this mess, not some ideal picture that doesn't exist yet. He works in this mess to get to the place that he's taking history to the fullness of his kingdom. It doesn't really answer the question. I just give that to you to think about. Um, But what's clear, even with that question aside, is that God is concerned for human life, period. The second point is just this, that God talks to his people. I want you to notice, this is helpful for us, I think. God talks to his people on the basis of revealed law, He talks to the pagan nations on the basis of universal law. Um, Here's what I mean. When God is talking to those nations that surround Israel, he does not talk to them as if they have received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Um, They haven't. He's appealing to something different. But as soon as he gets to Judah, do you notice the difference? Now he's referring to the law of God. All throughout throughout the book of Amos, when he talks to Israel, he's going to be talking about specific sections of the law that are found in Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, other places. Um, But he doesn't talk to the nations that way. So on what basis, then, does he feel the right to prophesy to these other nations who haven't even received the law of God? Well, um, Paul references this at the beginning of the book of Romans in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Um, He says this about the law of God in Romans 2, verse 14. It says, indeed, I think I have this verse up there, Letha. It says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, so when groups of people who have not received the law of God, they do not share Israel's history, they did not receive the law of God from Mount Sinai, do by nature things required by the law. So there's something inside them that leads them to do what's right or to want to do what's right, even though Mount Sinai and the giving of the law is not part of their people's history, then Paul says they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. One way theologians have described this concept is common grace, that God has left 
Enough of his grace present in the human experience, even people who have never opened up their Bibles, that their conscience is still able to some degree, it's very imperfect, very broken, easily is led astray to really broken places, really dangerous places, but there's something in the conscience, even if they've never read their Bible, that says this is right and this is wrong. Um, For instance, the very vast majority of the world's religions, even if they've disagreed about the nature of God or the identity of God, teach that murder is wrong, right? Um, we, there's consensus on this across cultures, right? Now, now, even with that being the case, we break the law all the time, right? And people get murdered and people get killed and we twist it so we can get around it and all of this stuff. Um, but generally speaking, there's consensus across the human experience that something like murder is wrong. And so this is how Amos appeals to the nations. He's saying, listen, listen, You killed pregnant women and their unborn children to extend your borders. You didn't need the law of God revealed at Mount Sinai to know that's wrong. Amos is saying, all the nations know this is wrong. Everyone thinks this is abhorrent. You did something that everyone thinks is wrong. Now, I think there's something helpful for us in this as we interact with the larger, larger society because God does want us to be a prophetic voice in the society that he has placed us in, particularly for the vulnerable. I think there's something we can learn from Amos. That when we are speaking to people who do not share our beliefs, that when we are speaking to people who are not followers of Jesus Christ, don't claim to be under the authority of this book, that we appeal to them in a different way, on the basis of their conscience. Um, We find a way to reason with them. We find a way to call out for what's right, Um, Not on the basis necessarily of what we've revealed in the law of God, but on the basis of what God has still put in the human conscience and the conscience of a group of people. I mean, I think there's something we can learn from that. But when God starts talking to his own people, he gets specific. He's telling them, you knew. The law was given to you. (laughs) It's been taught to you. You you are bound by this. And what this means is, is that even though at first glance it looks like God's people aren't doing things as heinous as their neighbors, it means that they are more responsible, not less. They're more responsible because of the revelation that's been given to them, not less. God doesn't let them off the hook. Instead, he calls them up higher because he's revealed himself to them in a specific way. Here's a third thing. God refuses to allow his people to ignore their own disregard of human life. It says last week, he starts with the pagans, you know, the Philistines, like the arch enemies of Israel. Then he starts prophesying to the cousins and the brothers, and, and then he gets to Israel. He won't let them off the hook. He's calling them up to the standard of the law, and the prophet is surfacing in them their hatred of other nations and their self-righteousness. And then he talks to them about their own sin. So what does all of this mean in terms of God's value for human life that seems so sweeping in this passage? All of the people that God cares about. He just watches the carnage of these empires just attacking each other. What does it mean? Well, I would just say this, and this is a broader theme in Scripture to begin with. It really begins in the book of Genesis and the descriptions that we have about human nature at the beginning of the Bible. But first of all, if we're going to talk about value in human life, let God affirm the value of your life. That's the starting part. Someone needs to hear that today, that your life matters to God. <laughs> that God loves you. Um, 
This is so critical as we talk about valuing the lives of other people because our capacity to value the lives of others, our capacity to protect their lives, to speak up for vulnerable lives, to be involved in issues of justice, all of this, um, requires really, if we're going to do that for the long haul, it really requires that we grow in deeper and deeper understanding of God's love for us. Um, Part of my experience in ministry is that I have been friends with and I've been involved in communities of people who are just utterly committed to justice, particularly for the poor and the oppressed. And I want to tell you, in those kinds of communities of people, and hopefully we're one of those kinds of communities, our family on mission, but in those communities of people, a lot of people don't stick with it for very long. A lot of people get burnt out. A lot of people get frustrated. A lot of people get disillusioned. A lot of people get tired. I woke up this morning and I was just, I, I, I don't know, I, I miss like the long days, but uh, these kind of dark mornings, I love to wake up and just kind of like, I'm still warm in my bed and just hear what God's saying to me, you know, before I get out of bed. Um, it's still dark. And uh, this morning, I was just thinking about how everything has been dependent. All these years, for as, as many years as we've tried to be involved, you know, in serving and advocating, it's just been dependent on us being able to receive more of God's love. On him and him extending his love to us and us receiving it and knowing more and more that we are loved. Um, if we don't know that, then we won't be able to give any love away to other people, not in any kind of sustainable long-term way. Because if we're not receiving God's love in that way, then, um, then all of our relationships even in ministry, just become transactional. I, I serve you or I do something for you so long as you can give something back to me. And we do this even in ministry. It's like I serve you so that I can feel valuable or I serve you so that I can feel wanted or appreciated or so that you'll say thank you to me. Or, you know, everything becomes transactional. Um, and, and there's just something about the way the love of God becomes present in our lives that takes away the need for all of that. It feels good when you say thank you to me, but I don't need you to because God loves me, right? Um, because I know that God loves me, and that's enough. It feels good when you notice me. It feels good when you appreciate me. Um, but if none of that existed, God loves me. And your, your noticing me, your appreciating me doesn't change at all the reality of God's love, whether it's present or not. I can be secure in that reality, right, in the love of God. And this is so true. If we're going to be advocates for people, it has to be rooted in the love of God. Secondly, look at yourself first. Identify where you don't value life and repent in those places. You know, like Israel, it's easy to look at people who seem to grossly not value life, who do heinous things, and to say they're the ones who aren't valuing life. You've seen what these nations have done? taking whole communities captive, desecrating a corpse, doing these awful, I would never do something like that. This is probably Israel's attitude. We would never do those kinds of terrible things. But what God is saying to them is, Israel, look at the way that you aren't valuing life. Maybe it wasn't in these war crimes, but in the way you are running your economy, you are not valuing human life. You are leaving behind the poor. You are not valuing the oppressed. And it, you might look at these other nations and think, no, they're the ones who are really awful, but God so values human life that he cares and notices when human life is disrespected or denigrated in any kind of way. When I reflect on this in my own life, I, 
I just think about attitudes that, you know, I might harbor in someone's heart. Or I think about the way that gossip, you know, just really takes away the dignity of another person in that conversation. I want to ask you today, what if we started to see these things as life issues, uh, as issues of valuing life? As, what if we started to see these things as issues that are an affront to the image of God and somebody else and, and started to see that differently? I've shared this before. I had a, a professor in a theology class of mine who used to share this example with us. He used to say, you know, if a cow falls into a ditch um, and is laying there and hurt and another cow walks by, is the cow morally responsible to save that other cow's life? Probably not, you know? Um, I don't know. You know, animals in their own way help each other, so I don't know if the cow would get involved or not, you know? But I don't know what he could do. But I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if that cow's morally responsible before God to do something. But if it's a human in a ditch and another human walks by, there's no moral ambiguity, is there, about what is right and what is wrong. It is wrong to walk by. It is wrong to leave that person. Why? Because what's different between us and cows, although cows are made by God and are beautiful creatures created by God and should point us to the reality of God the creator, we are the ones created in his image. And with that image comes a different sense of responsibility that we cannot ignore the person in the ditch. We cannot pass by the person who is hurting. Um, I don't know, if you gossip about your cow, I don't know, you know, it's right or wrong, but you can debate it. But if you gossip about a person, right, well, that person's created in the image of God. So it's a different moral issue. So I think this means as the people of God, we have to insist on valuing all life, even our enemies. Um, I do believe that the world is tired of a church that they are suspicious is only for their own people and for their own causes. Um, you know what would be an amazing witness in the world? And, and even especially as you may be feeling like the church is experiencing more and more marginalization, if, if that's the case, even especially in the time in which we live, what would be such a blazing hot witness for the glory of Christ is a church that loves even its enemies, is a church that protects even the lives of its enemies. Um, seriously, have you ever thought about this? I'm not going to get into specifics, but have you ever looked, even, even in society or in our political situation, at groups of people who are typically not associated with Bible-believing Christians? They're put in a camp that's our enemies. What would the narrative look like if we were the ones first in line to serve them? If we were the ones first in line to be in relationship with them, if we were the ones first in line to protect them, See, in, in our own way, the church and our culture has contributed to some of the hatred and polarization that we experience because when those opportunities existed, even decades ago, we missed them. There's whole groups of people now who think that we are not for them. There's whole groups of people who think that we do not want God's best for them. Um, what if we had been first to love our enemy, and to be involved, to protect them? And thirdly, insist on being for all life. Now, I'm not talking about being stirred with compassion for a certain group of people. Um, I'm going to talk about that next. Um, but what I'm saying is, 
we have to recognize that the image of God is present in everyone and everywhere. Our culture often tells us that you can't be for all living human beings. As a matter of fact, this is a tactic of empire. Empire is dependent on violence and control to get its own way. And God's people are always playing out their stories with God in the context of empire, including here in Amos. There's all of these empires, all of these human governments, human armies, human systems. That doesn't matter the, the brand, you know, it doesn't matter the culture, it doesn't matter. Some empires may have treated people better than others, but the Bible's language and concept of all of these governments, all of these armies is empire. Um, and one thing you see in empire is that empire tries to place value on certain lives and not on other lives, and then insists that violence is necessary um, to maintain this value or this value difference um, between people. And it sounds so logical. As a matter of fact, if you want to identify where uh, you know, demonic strongholds have found a place in a culture, it's often in the things that sound most logical and practical, um, but are opposed to God's law, um, are opposed to the kingdom, are opposed to God's way of doing things. And so empire is always finding these very logical explanations, very practical explanations for why we must protect this group and not that group and why we must use violence here to enforce that. And it's just what empire has been doing from the beginning. And empire will try to make the people of God choose between human life. Um, if you don't believe me, you know, it's an election season. Now, this is when it really comes out in our culture. Our election narratives tell us that we have to be for the mother or the baby, for the rich or the poor, really the middle class and the poor, for prisoners or for victims, for natural-born citizens or for immigrants, and tries to divide groups of people based on these things. And it all sounds logical. And one of those sides might sound more logical to you than the other side. And we, we land in the place we do because we're thinking through these things in a logical way. Um, but I want to tell you that because God created everybody in the image of God and because his kingdom is working and advancing, you do not have to choose between the value of one life over another life. We can insist on being for all life. Now, uh, in the day and age in which Amos lived, there was no such thing as democracy, right? Um, and we experience democracy's blessing and challenges in trying to apply the word of God. One of the blessings, I think it's a blessing, is that we get to participate on some level in our democracy. In a few weeks, we'll be voting and casting votes um, I think that's a good thing, but man, it's hard to go into a voting booth where empire is screaming from different directions, and uh, you only have one vote, right? Um, and so you have to use that one vote, right, in a way that, that values life. I think that's a challenging thing that, that we have to decide. Um, I just want to say this, because the election's coming up in a few weeks. Friends, our church, and it's been this way for years, you all do not vote the same. Um, if you don't know that, you should know that about our church. Um, as a matter of fact, I would say that at this point, it would be hard for me to even pick a majority, um, just based off of what people tell me. Um, we are not going to vote the same in this election, and our church has not done this for a long time. And let me tell you this, if you tried to guess how people vote, you'd probably be very surprised. Um, 
I find that too. I'm surprised all the time, you know, when people open up to me and say these things. But here's the encouragement I want to give you. Um, when you go to vote, if you're going to go vote, vote for life in the way that God has put that on your conscience. There's different ways to do this. It might be a particular issue. You feel like you're, you need to use your vote for the sake of the vulnerable. Um, it might be an issue thing. It might be, I know some in our church who make it about their community. Okay, this is my neighborhood. How's life going to be valued in my neighborhood? I'm going to vote for the candidate that does that. But I would say this. The right way to vote is not out of self-interest and not out of fear, but on the behalf of the vulnerable, whoever that is. Um, and you only have one vote, but I think your conscience is clear before God if you use that vote for life because we can insist on being for all life. Now, with that being said, insist on being for all life, let me also say that we ought to especially stand up for vulnerable life. Um, and these things are not contradictory. You know, being for all life and especially standing up for vulnerable life are not contradictory. As a matter of fact, this is what God is like himself. Um, he's deeply concerned about all of human life. I mean, what is human life to God that God even cares about the desecration of this corpse? You know? Like, God's like, you didn't bury him right. There's something about that practice, even though this person is dead, that in God's eyes does not honor human life, right? Does not honor what this human body was, right? As created by God, as a bearer of his image. So God's deeply concerned for all of it, and yet we even see God standing up for groups of people who are vulnerable, particular groups of people, and I do believe that this is God-honoring. I think God calls us to be for the poor, for the unborn, for immigrants, for ethnic and racial minorities, for prisoners. And we ought to unashamedly be for these people. We have to unashamedly have a voice that speaks up um, on the behalf of vulnerable people. And that doesn't mean that we're not valuing all of life. It means that we're saying we are recognizing a place where life has not been properly honored. And so we want to be a voice that speaks up for that. And I think as we live in that tension of honoring all of life and speaking up for vulnerable life, that we end up finding creative ways to participate in the kingdom of God as it affirms the lives of people. That's really what I love. You know, I, I just talked about the political diversity of our church. It's very true, and by the way, very unusual. I say this to pastors, and they're like, oh, my church is not like that at all, you know? I mean, it's very unusual, and even in our church, some people have said to me, you know, I wish that weren't the case. I wish we were more like this, and of course, it's normally more like them, and I wish those other people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I'm going to keep insisting on it that I believe what we have is a beautiful expression of the kingdom of God here. I, I believe what it communicates is that we are sojourners here, that we are doing our best with the responsibilities that have been given to us, including this one vote in an election season. Um, and that we recognize that as important as voting is, um, that we are a people who are cooperating with the kingdom of God in these creative ways as we exist in these tensions of empire and what the kingdom of God is doing. And that the real story isn't how we vote necessarily, but the way that God is showing up in these creative spaces.
I did mention this story just a few weeks ago, and I've told it before, but it's just the perfect story for this sermon, so I'm going to share it again. A few years ago, some of us went down to Belle Glade, Florida to hold this VBS in a public housing community, among other things that we were doing, and, and this, is a, this is a place where human life is not being properly honored. Um, you know, there's people who are really being oppressed because their options are so few, are working in the fields to produce food that we enjoy and eat, and they're not getting paid a fair wage, they're not able to rise up out of poverty, and just the neighborhood, and there's some places like this, sometimes the physical structures of a place don't properly communicate uh, the value of human life to the people who live there, and this neighborhood is one of those places. It's just very clearly, this is a place where people are not being properly honored and properly valued, and all kinds of prejudice against this neighborhood, all all of this. We, we go and we're holding this VBS just for a week and, you know, the kids and the parents are coming around and we were holding it outside. Well, this is basically like in the Everglades and uh, I'm telling you, there's a different kind of mosquito down there. It's like crazy. And so there's this, you know, th uh, thick Florida grass, you know, if you've ever been in Florida and man, if you don't spray yourself up real good, your ankles will just get gnawed on, you know, on these nights you know, during VBS. And, um, and so we're out there just serving the kids, and there's a community center there. And uh, the community center workers happened to be there, and they said, why don't you come on and hold your VBS inside this community center? I don't know anything about these people. I don't know what they believe. I don't know if they believe the same things we do, but they invite us into this community center. And there's a huge banner on the wall talking about the, the um, uh, services that Planned Parenthood provides. It was very clear that this was a referral spot in the neighborhood for Planned Parenthood. Now, I'm not gonna get into a ton of details here, but what I'm about to say isn't even talking about, it's not even a statement on reproductive services that you know, ought to be offered to people to care for them. I'm just saying, I've heard so many African-American leaders, even in our community, talk about the, the, the way that uh, Planned Parenthood and its history weaponized reproductive services against people of color. Um, it's a terrible injustice. And so, you know, this is a place that if you just like look at our political narratives, this is, this is an organization that is often butting heads with the church, you know? Um, we do not see things in you know, the same way. I, I do not agree, you know, with with the, those parts of Planned Parenthood's history or what it does. But here we are being invited inside to hold a VBS. <laughs> and we're talking about Jesus and we're talking about God's value for people. And, and listen, I don't know what kind of dissonance that creates in your mind, but here's just what I want to tell you. When we insist on seeing the image of God in everyone, those kids, their parents who are showing up, the workers who are present at that place, when we insist on seeing the image of God in everyone, it's, I believe when we're on mission with Jesus, he calls us into these spaces that we could never have imagined. Now listen, this, this was just one night. I'm not saying create any kind of systemic change, but it is a picture for me. How he calls us into these spaces where we just get to be advocates for everybody. Where we just get to stand up for everyone. Where we get to notice who needs our voice in this moment and lend our voice to God's cause of justice for them and their community. And we just get to do this in ways that our news networks can't imagine, in ways that this election can't imagine. That's what I'm talking about, the creativity of the kingdom of God. Vote how you have to vote. 
But friends, step into the creativity of the kingdom of God to step into these places where God leads us as a family on mission in our lives. Um, those are the stories. It's like, man, in the midst of the forces of empire. Think, think about that story that night. Empire is oppressing people in the fields. Empire is oppressing people through this organization. Empire is oppressing people in this neighborhood. And there the people of God are bringing the kingdom in this creative way in the middle of all of it in relationship. I long for more stories like that. Because I think too often as a church, we just end up barking out the things the empire is telling us to say. I long for us to come with a different message. And friends, you hear this in election season, that message is not some kind of like, I don't know, moderate position between two parties. It's some, the theological word for what we have, what we bring to these discussions, the theological word is apocalyptic. And all that means is otherworldly. And breaking in on this world, it's not some kind of compromise between two empires. It's a whole other thing together that's just breaking in to our world and that we get to participate and be a part of. We have that by the Spirit of God. And I long to be a people who just keep living out those creative stories that cause people, uh, maybe you felt some of this while I was sharing that story, that cause people to kind of have to think for a second. Wait, you held a VBS where? Um, but those are the kinds of stories that bring attention to Jesus, that give evidence that Jesus is doing something even in the places where we least expect it.